Hi, it's G3, and this week, Jordi and I are delighted to welcome onto Green Marbles our old friend, Sultan Meji. Sultan has been on the show before where he talked about China, financial innovation, and cybersecurity. This time, he, Jordi, and I gathered to discuss the intersection of health and longevity and artificial intelligence. As an AI expert with decades of technology experience, Sultan brings a unique perspective to health topics, and I think you'll find the following conversation with Jordi to be quite beneficial. And as a side note, given the length of the conversation, we have broken this up into two parts. So please, enjoy part one today and make sure to check important disclosures at the end of the conversation. And with that, welcome. All right. We are recording. Sultan, fantastic to have you back. This is your second time on the show, right? It is. I believe you are the only guest we have had two times. I actually have found your office without having to Google it. That is amazing. I feel <laughs> like if you're back a third time, we're going to have to get you like a Kelly green jacket or something to commemorate it. I mean, some swag would work. All right. Swag shall be had for you. I'm very excited about this episode. I think we're going to cover a lot of stuff as it relates to health and longevity and how AI is upending assumptions and taking us forward. And we're going to talk about your journeys and the like. But before we do that, I just have a, an observation really disguised as a question I want to throw out to the both of you. You know, if you talk to most people and you ask them, is health important? And I think most people would say, absolutely, if you don't have your health, what do you have? Health is very, very important. And yet, as I went over sort of the Rolodex in my mind, I came to the conclusion that there are many people that I know, and I'm assuming it's the same for both of you, who probably spend more time on their car collection or on tending to their social media profile than they do on their health. Why is it on one hand, so important to everybody, but on the other hand, a situation where many, many people don't really tend to it at all. I'm going to go with one of my favorite phrases, which is social engineering. We are engineered as a society to believe that the existing medical infrastructure, which is very reactive, very much when something bad happens, call the ambulance and they take care of you, is medical care, is health. Therefore, as long as I am calling the ambulance when something bad happens and I'm able to do that, that is taking care of my health. And in reality, we're missing at least half, if not more, of that conversation. And so we have an entire civilization at this point that thinks that healthcare and the existing medical ecosystem overlap, and they don't. And we're now at a point where we're starting to see some big divergences between that. And I think this is what we're going to talk about for the rest of this podcast. I'm just going to add, maybe it's translating some of what you said into the way it enters my brain, which is we've talked on the other longevity podcast about the differential in this country between health span and lifespan. And as lifespan has increased, but health span is not, I think there's a complacency from people that, oh, there's a drug to fix whatever I am. I don't need to do that. I don't have the time to do it. And so when you get to 66 and you're really unhealthy, which is what has happened in this country and lifespan in this country has actually declined for the last nine years, which is unprecedented in the country. I think we've made it too easy, not only in the medical side, but the food side, the exercise, we've just made it easier for people not to do as much. And so people love self-help books and I think they want to get there. So what's keeping them? And I think it's a word that I've started to analyze more and more, which is people need to have willpower. The information's all there. And hopefully as we go through this podcast, we'll give people some self-help stuff, but we'll also try to narrow the gap between, hey, if you raise your health span and get it close to your lifespan, you're going to be a lot healthier and happier for the last 10 years of your life. So neither of you were focused in on longevity, I'm going to guess 10 years ago. I haven't known either of you 10 years. I've known you both a long time, but I'm interested to get a sense of what inspired both of you and if you could, after you do that, talk about how your relationship, and by the way, I take 100% credit for your relationship. 
talk about how you guys have interacted and really influenced each other. Sultan, why don't you start? Sure. So just over 10 years ago, actually, I was pivoting a cloud computing company to be a biotech, to be a clinical genetic diagnostic company. And it was one of the first to do it in the cloud. We were using some incredibly advanced technology to take basically this latest generation of next generation sequencers that were much faster, much cheaper, and try to get that out to the masses. So you might have heard about the $100 genome, $1,000 genome, things like that. It was of that era. And trying to get a new molecular diagnostic through the FDA was people, you know, in the finance sector talk about, you know, the SEC and the Federal Reserve and people like that as painful regulators to work with. They are as nothing compared to what the FDA puts you through if you're trying to get a new diagnostic into the American ecosystem. And by the way, my dad was a geneticist. He helped invent genetically modified crops, which we'll come back to at some point in this conversation because it's relevant. And so I was always thinking about it as, okay, if I understand my genetics and then I start capturing more diagnostics, I can fundamentally become healthier. And what I learned 10, 12 years ago was that that was not the case. The diagnostics weren't there. The data capture wasn't there. And so I basically put it on the back burner for a long time. And then over the last four or five years, I've all of a sudden, as I start to get older, you get into your 40s, you start realizing you know, things don't heal as quickly, you sound like a bowl of Rice Krispies when you got out of bed, you know, these things, right? You realize that you are not in a position where you're taking care of yourself and you're preparing yourself. Because the last thing I want to do is be like my dad, who in 2015 went to bed one night and just didn't wake up the next morning, right? And that, from 2015 onwards, it has completely changed how I think about the medical ecosystem. Because he fundamentally was healthy. He had had cancer and beaten it. He was living the dream life in Costa Rica, you know, playing tennis with his buddies. You know, he was not an old man. He was 65. And I'm just looking at approaching that age with the inexorability of life and realizing that I need to have way more data and way more ability to understand what's actually going on in my body and how these systems get together. And this is, we'll talk about this, but this is one of the things Jordy and I have really bonded on is the fact we're both systems thinkers. And we realize that the medical ecosystem does not consider in a modern way how our bodies are actually very complex systems, whether it's diet, whether it's our lung capacity or any of the other things we're going to talk about. And so for the last seven and a half years now, it has strictly been a series of what I call short PhD theses, trying to understand each of these different systems and how they play into each other from basics of making sure you get a good night's sleep, you're eating the right things, to, okay, why do I have multiple diagnostic platforms on my body 24 hours a day? Because I do now. Because I need to have more data so that we can start building better intelligence around that so that we can get in front of these health issues before you get to be 65 and all of a sudden you're taking every pill and it's an entirely reactive discussion. So <laughs> I'm going to start on the relationship side just because Sultan said a lot there that I think people are probably, they've heard us talk about systems learning, but I'm going to make things simple for the way that I engage with people. And I think Sultan's found this. I literally view every person as what grade are they in? So I go back to college. Sultan's in like 35th grade. <laughs> and so for me, <laughs> I try to hang around with people that are at least in the twenties. And what that means is every time I sit down with someone that I have, like we've seen each other and we've been in each other's presence, maybe seven, eight times. And during those seven or eight times, the same way G3, you and I kind of developed this relationship was we just sat in a room and we riffed on things and we didn't know where the conversation was going. There was no agenda. And if someone is in advanced grades in life, that means every time I see them, they're graduating another grade. They're getting smarter. They're learning new things. They're continually being curious. And we just hit on it that every time I sit with them, I learn something new. It leads to me getting a new firing. Like I was a child learning what a zebra is. And I'm sure the feeling is mutual on his end that we're just Absolutely. probing each other and getting thoughts. So that relationship and the thinking of it, we learn a lot from each other. And it's a big thing in terms of longevity. Anyone who's ever done a diet cares about longevity. So unconsciously everyone thinks about longevity from a young age. Anyone who's gone jogging, I hate jogging, but I have jogged. To do that means I literally want to live longer or healthier. And I will say the true trigger point for me with longevity actually occurred about a decade ago. 
And I was in Hong Kong at a conference and a woman named Terry Walls was speaking on stage. Terry Walls is now fairly famous as one of the original people that got a focus and a spotlight on functional medicine, which basically means instead of, and Sultan loves this because what we talk about, instead of symptoms-based care, she wanted to get to the root cause. Why? Why do I have MS? And she went back to food and she spent all this time. And if you go look her up and you go buy her book and you read it and I've sent it to family members, there's a bunch of people on the floor that I gave it to after I came back from the conference because I got to sit with her and her curiosity and her need to go from being in a wheelchair for four years and saying, I just want the MS to stop worsening and I want to get to a position where I can help other people. It made me believe, number one, that I had to really expand my knowledge of what the body did with food. And I already knew I wanted to be pain-free, but that time came right when I turned 40. And so to Sultan's point, these numbers of age mean a lot in your journey and you start to focus more. In my 30s, my grandfather, or right before 30, my grandfather died. And I didn't want to die in a point where he was, again, on a scooter. He wasn't moving around the way he wanted. So I wanted to make sure it was healthy. And then for a lot of people out there, once I started having kids and I started, you know, I had a child with anxiety I don't want her to go through that pain. So I wanted to learn more about the way that food affected the mind and the body did. So longevity to me became something that had a lot of different triggers. It's just gotten easier as a systems thinker who cares about data, going back to handicapping horse races and stuff. I've always been data helps you make better decisions and the ability of accumulating more data as a trigger point really started with wearables. And so it's accelerating now in terms of my focus on longevity. But I think since the time that I first jogged or first ate kale or did something, which I didn't want to do, but I knew it was good for me. Unconsciously, I was thinking about longevity for a long time. Could you both talk about some of the health management protocols that you both undertake today? Guest first. Yeah, we always go back and forth. Okay. So it's funny. I am now in my mid to late 40s in probably better health than since I was in my mid to early 20s. And that is not a function of COVID or anything like that. It's a function of the diagnostic tooling and the ability to act on that data has gotten so much better to Jordy's point, whether it's wearables or other diagnostics. And so I through 2021 really got intense about the diagnostic cycle, very intense about it. I went down really three different paths. One was redoing the entire genetic platform with a full clinical evaluative cycle with you know, significant investment in a genetic counselor and all that kind of work. Just as a tangent, if you are a student listening to this and you don't know what to get a master's degree in and you want to make sure you have a job for the next 50 years, become a genetic counselor. There are about 4,000 in the country and we need about 400,000. And you don't need to go to medical school, which is great. So I did that. That was what I consider a baseline. And then I went from that into epigenetics and into how the systems of my body were currently functioning. So it was getting the Apple Watch and wearing it significantly, getting the Aura Ring, doing significant molecular blood work, understanding how my digestive system operated. Did I have food allergies? Did I have environmental allergies? Really understanding as much as I could get access to where I could get access to the real data. And out of that, I discovered a bunch of things about my body that I did not know. I understood that I now have a bunch of food allergies I didn't realize I had. I understood that my body would, and I was doing this in kind of 90-day segments, my body would respond to different styles of eating in different ways. So I introduced intermittent fasting. I introduced a caloric restriction. I tried kind of everything that everybody does. And what I have discovered is out of that process, a very small subset of changes that I made. I removed a couple of things from my diet. I changed the sequence of when I eat. I have not changed my caloric intake at all. In fact, if anything, it's higher. I have not stopped drinking. I probably should, but I haven't. <laughs> and I've lost the better part of 45 pounds and on any given moment can get up and run a 5K, which I could not do two years ago. And a year or two before I went down this journey, I was doing triathlons. Not well, but I was doing them. I am now basically the same weight I was when I was 25. I have the cardiovascular health of something closer to a 25-year-old. I am now at a point where I can, we're in Manhattan right now, I can go out to lunch and kind of eat whatever I want for lunch if I felt like it. And it's an absolutely fantastic evolution. So that was the second part was really understanding those systems. And then the third is optimizing the future state, right? And this is the preventative stuff. And this is where 
we're going to start talking about HRV and some of these other things because you know that 65 is going to happen, right? And so how do you get to a point where by the time you get to 65, your biological age doesn't get there? So if I went from 40-something to 20-something in terms of you know, biologic age, fantastic. How do I make sure that when I'm 63, it all doesn't fall off the side of a bus and I all of a sudden end up in a scooter or, or whatever, right? And so now it's about looking at creating systems of behaviors that are systemically built into my daily life that are small little bite-sized things I do that ensure that I am keeping up with stuff. And this is where you know, Jordy and I have converged on HRV from two radically different perspectives, which is hilarious because he and I until what a month ago yeah. had never talked about HRV. Nope. But you and I have spent the better part of the last year looking at all these different bodily systems and realizing that HRV for guys our age is probably the single most important thing for us right. to be paying attention to. So if we're going to, if we're going to lead into that, Jordy, can you just briefly explain before you talk about your own health management protocols, briefly explain what HRV is. So if you type in what is HRV, you'll probably, unless you really have a science brain and you want to spend time on it, it's going to take you in a direction that isn't going to mean much. But you have a heart rate, which is beats per minute. And in between, let's say you have a, right now I get really excited and my heart rate goes up to 78. and then. All of a sudden you take it again and it's down to 72. The variation in the heartbeat to heartbeat to heartbeat is the mathematical side. So that's interesting to people. If you take it even further and then you start getting into, well, it's the balance of the autonomic nervous system. Well, then you're going to lose people again. Absolutely. So here's what I want to do to make it easier for people. Think of HRV as being the gas pedal, which is when you go into fight or flight which is one side of the nervous system. And then the braking system, which is the rest and digest part. So everyone has been in this moment where they realize something happens and they immediately go into fight to flight. They see a spider, they see a snake, and all of a sudden their heart rate immediately goes up. They didn't cause it to go up, it just happened. The question is, how quickly can you calm down? And believe it or not, a higher HRV means you have more control. And the way I've kind of used an analogy or metaphor is, your brake pads are really, really strong, meaning you see it, you identify it, you're aware of it, and then you calmly just slow down. And so HRV is the ability of getting calm real quick. Now you said briefly, but for the sports fans, I'm going to go different directions. Zach Wilson, quarterback of the Jets, he has happy feet. Well, he has low HRV. He's in fight or flight mode. The second the ball is snapped to him, he is scared and he can't go through. Tom Brady, Cool as a cucumber. So what do we say for him? And you go through it. Oh, the game was really slow for him, which means his HRV is high. Like he's been in this situation. He's calm. If you watch the show Limitless and you saw Chris Hemsworth with the firefighting, you can go through a bunch of athletic things. But then the other part of HRV, which is what makes it the most interesting, is the anxiety side. So if you have a child and they're ruminating on something, they're kind of having a temper tantrum. Well, you're stuck in fight or flight. And the question is, how do you teach them to be able to be calm and relaxed? Some kids don't have temper tantrums as much. Their HRV is generally going to be higher in that type of mode where they have more control. So it's think of it as the control over your fight or flight. So high, good, more control, low, bad, less control. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Okay. And let's talk about some of your, and I know them, but just for everyone's benefit, what your processes these days in terms of your health management? Well, the first is, and this gets back into something Sultan and I, we live off of, which is since the day I started caring about my health, I needed a data point to use as my gauge. So the number one data point that everyone learns when they're young is what's my weight. And so you kind of have a number in mind at some point when you reach 30, you're like, okay, if I'm at 190 pounds, I'm okay. And then you try to stay around 190 pounds. You get a scale. I don't have a scale anymore, but I had a scale when I was younger and I'm like, oh my God, I'm 205. I got to go on a diet. So then you bring it down. I get a physical every year. And for the first from 30 to 40, the physical said the same thing every year. Blood pressure is about the same as it was last year. Your cholesterol is the same way. Everything's the same. But then all of a sudden when you turn 40, data starts to get a little mixed. And my protocols had to change at that point because they started throwing out this evil thing to me. 
And the evil thing to me, which Americans in this country do at an alarming rate, is that we are 5% of the world's population, but we consume more than 50% of the pharmaceuticals. We treat everything with drugs. And when a doctor says, oh, your blood pressure went from 130 over 80 to 133 over 83, we need to give you medicine. I'm like, wait, what happened? I've been at 130 over 80 for the last 10 years. They go, no, 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 we need to get it back. Where's the proof for this? Why, why are you, give me some analytics. I need to have some data before I want to take medicine. So the key point in protocol for me is I don't want to take any medicine. I don't take Advil. I don't take Mucinex. There's nothing that I take on a regular basis. If I had to guess last year, I may have had 10 Advil for the course of the year. So part of my protocol is don't take medicine. And if I need to, that means I have to get to the root cause and I have to ask why. And so that's why when we talked on the original podcast, that led to me creating my five degrees that I wanted to be an expert in for my body. Mindfulness, which got caught into, okay, I have to breathe. I have to do yoga. I have to do Pilates. I have to go into nature. I have to hike all the mindfulness stuff. I focused on that. I learned as much as I could immune system, which really kicked off during COVID. I really wanted to learn more about the immune system. And so we've talked about how I've been taking mushroom supplements and eating mushrooms every day for the past four years that started before COVID. But then I really started to focus a lot on this mind gut connection, the brain gut connection. And it became very interesting to me during COVID. So immunity became a big thing. Then it was nutrition's always been something that's big and that's migrated over the years, exercise, the same thing, and then sleep. And for all of those, I would collect data. And so the merging of more data, so the physical and the scale were the only data I had really for the 90s and early 2000s. But now I have an aura ring like Sultan. Now I think I impacted you getting one. You did. What yeah. about you? Absolutely. Okay. So a lot of the technology here we all have. You, get, you have a referral code you can get? <laughs> aura ring should be reaching out. There's definitely been that. And the same thing will be going on for Respirate, I'm sure, by the end of this show. But I have an aura ring. I have an iWatch. They give me data on a regular basis. I want that. And over the course of the last, say, three years of collecting all this data, like Sultan said, and as we talked about on the first podcast of the year, okay, I've made a goal. I want to raise my HRV. And this is why when I say what grade someone is in, I'm constantly trying to graduate each year to another grade. And to do that, I have to learn new things and I have to focus on my health because optimal health is something that I'm focused on a lot. HRV became an important part for me. And that's where this thing took off because it was the only data point in my three years of data for ordering. That did not change when I used that MINDS acronym. I improved everything in my body, my heart rate, my breathing rate, everything improved, but HRV did not budge. And so I had to answer the question, why is this not moving? Yeah. I mean, this is an interesting point, and I hope the listeners are hearing between the two of us the two things. One is it is a constant learning process because the body is not a static thing. What is true for both of us today is not going to be true in five years. It'll be different. Our bodies are going to change hopefully for good because we've continued to learn and get all of this. But this kind of a journey is not a maximize your HRV and all of a sudden you can do everything, right? It, that's not the point here. The point is that there's a landscape picture of how all these systems interoperate with each other and our body interacts with that in different ways at different points in our lives. You're CEO of a company, you're going to have a baseline of stress that's a little different than if you're retired, right? And so you're going to have to look at different things. So mindfulness and meditation, for example, that is radically different and will evolve over time. But I just want to make sure that the people listening hear that because five years from now, I am positive my nutrition is going to be different. I'm positive my workout regime is going to be different. I'm positive that the lifestyle that I lead in terms of job or whatever is going to be different. And that will then impact all of this. And so getting to a point where we can close these loops at faster paces because we have better data and it doesn't take three years of data collection. Mm -hmm. It takes 30 days of data collection. That's what we're all trying to get to so that we can incrementally change these as they just become baked in parts of our daily lives. So this gets into the role potentially that AI can play. But before we do that, I would just like to have a brief discussion of the vagus nerve and its growing importance, at least in your mind, Jordi, but I think that there's a lot of credibility to this as to the role it plays in managing one's own health. So can you just explain that? So I was telling you before, G3, that if I said to you, okay, you're going to get on a roller coaster and for the first ride, I want you to put your hands up and hold it up the entire time. 
okay, you did that. Great. No problem. This time I want you to go on there and I want you to keep your eyes closed the entire time. No problem whatsoever. Okay. This time I want you to go on the roller coaster and I want you to keep your heart rate down low the entire time and you can't do it. And that's because your vagus nerve has said, oh, danger. We're going fast. Oh, danger. We're going up. This is not good. We need to protect ourselves. And it goes to your reptilian brain. The amygdala goes, okay, send the blood pressure up, send the heart rate. We're in for a fight. We might have to dive off this thing. We might have to, like, it's preparing for death. It's preparing for you to be in fight or flight. The vagus nerve is making that decision by going through your body and actually telling you what it's sending it up the signal. The cool thing about it is it is a nerve connected to the brain and connected to all the organs, but it's a super highway going in both directions. So I've listened to Josh Waitzkin talk about HRV over the course of the last few weeks. And you know my love of Josh Waitzkin and the book, The Art of Learning. Well, he's obsessed with HRV. He has this person that he works with, Leah Lagos. I just bought her book. I've listened to a bunch of podcasts with her. And what I really like about it is I'm a big believer for people to go to therapy to talk out the things that are bothering them, to kind of help their depression and their anxiety. Well, that's coming from a top-down basis. You're conscious of it. You're talking about it. You're trying to impact by talking about it that it's going to lessen those fears. So I spent my early youth learning about Freud. What I love about the vagus nerve is it also comes the other direction, meaning if you breathe and if you give it some kind of training, it can immediately calm down. And that ride on the roller coaster, it's not you're going to be able to take your heart rate all the way back down to where it was when you got on but it's not going to go as high as it was. It's not going to sit up there. It's going to come down and it'll go back up. It'll come down and it'll go back up. And that's why if people haven't watched the show, Limitless does a really good job, particularly in the first episode with stress, of highlighting the vagus nerve and HRV without actually calling it the vagus nerve and HRV. It's an entire thing on the involuntary actions of your body and your nervous system and how impactful they are. That if you have virtual reality goggles on, it scares the hell out of you if you're standing on this to the point where you're paralyzed. Well, that is your vagus nerve sending a signal saying protection, protection. So the vagus nerve has become something for me that I'm just going to keep reading about and keep learning about because I think it's a way to help your kids with anxiety. I think it's a way for you to focus on things again, like willpower. Why can't you lose the weight? Why can't you meditate? Why can't you do these things? If you want to train your vagus nerve, you have to spend time. And there are ways that you can actually, as they say, get your vagal tone to a much healthier place. Sultan, do you think that another way of saying getting your vagal turn into a healthy place is just basically to build a meditation practice? Well, they're not separate, right? You know, I've been in a lot of very high stress environments, whether it was 9-11 or a variety of other things in my life. And I believe you were shot in Iraq, right? I have talked about that. Yeah. Well, I just want you to say it again. Yeah. 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 Having been shot, that, that does institute some stress. And it was in Iraq. Yeah. You know, having, I, the way I talk about it generally is that having almost died, you know, four times, two of which I don't remember, two of which I have vivid memories of, you do have to force your brain out of its little meat sack at the top of your body and force it to actually bring control over the rest of your systems, right? And that's really what we're talking about here. And the vagus nerve is one of those mechanisms, you know, controlling your breathing is part of that. Being able to almost hear your heart and then talk it down off the cliff, talk it down off that bitter taste of adrenaline that's in your mouth in environments like that, whether you're walking down the street and almost get hit by a car or whatever other situation it is. For me, it was a learned pattern over decades, right? What Jordy is talking about is a more intentional way of taking agency over that process and saying, I want to control it. And here are mechanisms that are available. Vegas nerve is one pathway into that system, right? And I'll tell you the most interesting thing about how I managed to get my heart rate down to get that kind of calming going was because I was getting paralyzed by migraines weekly from my late teens to early 20s because I was studying things like terrorism and nuclear weapons. And I was teaching, you know, a nuclear weapons class, like literally how to build them. And I was freaking out because we were, you know, this was, you know, right at the end of the cold war, you know, this was an active thing, you know, loose nukes, anybody old enough to remember that. And so the notion that like some disgruntled guy with a suitcase could you know, irradiate Manhattan or whatever was a big part of my life. And it was just highly stressful. Right. And lying in bed, utterly paralyzed, you know, ice pack over the eyes, all of that, just having to sit there for 12 hours, I literally had to say, okay, I have to get my heart rate down. 
I have to not feel my heart pounding through my head. I have to be able to breathe where I'm not gasping almost, right? And going through that process got me to a point of calm where I could then fall asleep. And not just fall asleep, because it's easy to fall asleep. It's not easy to sleep and get rest out of it, to get that deep sleep. And the great thing about things like the aura rings and some of these other wearables is you can tell if you slept seven hours and it was a good seven hours, or you slept seven hours and it was a terrible seven hours. And so now we're at a point where what I had to just do in order to function, these data capture systems are now at a point where we can capture them and we can start applying really interesting algorithms to them, getting back to this, this AI topic we want to get to. Because just imagine you're a young person living in an incredibly intense part of human history right now between economic distress, political upheaval, healthcare issues, pandemics, all of these things. I can't imagine what it would be like to be in middle school or high school right now. It's a horrible environment. And so are we surprised that there are issues with stress and there are all these other issues that so many young people are struggling with? No, they don't have 20 years to just figure all this out on their own. We have to create better systems that allow them to then understand this conversation in a way that then can help them navigate it, whether it's their parents or themselves directly or the school systems or whatever, like that's a separate issue. But the fact is, is we now have the tools to do this. And I'm now starting to get frustrated and you'll hear my frustration grow over the course of this podcast because we have the tools now. Five years ago, we didn't have the tools. 10 years ago, we didn't have the tools. Now we have the tools where we can actually start to understand this. And if Jordy and I can independently in our spare time start to get to a point where we're navigating this in an effective way, why the heck isn't this something that is being deployed to people who can absolutely use it right now? All right. Well, let's move the conversation to another tool in the toolbox that I think will become increasingly important in the years to come. Let's talk about AI. And my leadoff question is, in both of your views, is AI going to replace the doctor or is it going to make doctors better? Both and neither. Both and neither. Yeah. Okay. That is an interesting answer. Yeah. So the challenge is, and I need to preface this because I always say this when we talk about AI and up until this point, at some point after the singularity, I will change my answer. My first caveat is we do not actually have artificial intelligence. We have automation. We have data integration. We have dynamic programming. We have the ability for algorithms to teach, be taught, and to, to a degree, teach themselves how to answer questions in more specific ways based on reinforcement or a variety of other things. We are starting to see an evolution past that. And it's not chat GPT because that's a toy. It is far more about the ability for AIs and other technologies to work in tandem to then grow into something more interesting over time. But you're saying we don't have artificial generalized intelligence. Or even specialized, I would argue. I think we have slightly dynamic algorithms, I think is probably the most accurate from a computer scientist perspective way to talk about this, right? We have algorithms that will weight, W-E-I-G-H-T, not W-A-I-T, weight themselves by their programmers. They're programmed a certain way. They weight certain decisions in certain ways. And on proof of new data will adjust those weights. That is at the granularity of 50 neurons, 100 neurons, something like that. It's going to be five to 10 years before the complexity of those weighting systems is at a point where I would even begin to consider calling it artificial intelligence. So that's my disclaimer on the front end of the total, a bit of a tangent, but it's worth noting because if we apply the current technologies we have, these automated analytic systems, we are doing two things. One is we are creating the ability for doctors to get better analytics faster with a broader data set. The regulatory system has not really wrapped their arms around it because they don't want to put more data, more clinical data into those environments. And they certainly don't want to take decision-making authority away from doctors. So that's kind of part one. Part two is those same systems and those same data platforms plus the integrations plus the wearables that we're talking about allow guys like Jordy and me now to fundamentally do a better job at diagnosing where our bodies are than any doctor we have access to. I still get very energized about the fact that molecular biology, which is a critical component of our current understanding of how the body works, was not required at Harvard Med until the 2000s. 
right? Well, that means that if you have a doctor who graduated from Harvard Med before then with no continuing education requirement and you say, here is my clinical exome and here are the four SNPs that, that are kind of relevant to the thing we're talking about, you just as likely have them say that has no clinical relevancy. In fact, one of the heads of one of the cancer centers not too long ago got on a stage and said publicly, there is no value there. Well, that's just patently false. And he's so far out of the educational system at this point that he can't have that discussion. And so AI is really doing three things. One is it is creating a platform of ability for people to operate outside of the existing clinical system and actually get better data and better results. Number one. Number two is it is going to present itself as an amazing risk management mechanism inside of the medical ecosystem to catch stupid behavior and errors and things like that. And that's a very strong parallel to how we're using it in the financial services sector and what I used as a federal regulator to look at bad behavior in the banks and stuff like that. And then the third is, and this is the most interesting thing, it is going to take treatment platforms and diagnostic platforms that have historically been far out of the reach of people from a price point perspective because you need to go work with Peter Atia and pay hundreds of thousands of dollars and stuff like that to increase your longevity. We now are at a point where that can be brought down to consumer pricing or close to consumer pricing because you don't need a highly specialized doctor doing one-on-one care. You can use artificial intelligence and other technical systems and you can put it on an app. I'm not going to take what he said too much further, but I think as he jumped into the Peter Atia thing, I'm going to add more on one element because I agree with the neither both answer. And I'm not avoiding the question because I also think, and I'm going to use something that Sultan said before to finish it up, but the beauty of listening to Peter Atia, watching him on Limitless and thinking about what goes on, the more blood work you get, the more that the advanced analytics come or the advanced data comes in terms of capturing it in a toilet. I mean, Sultan and I have talked a lot about smart toilets allowing you to have your DNA done every day or allowing your urine to be analyzed every single day as opposed to having to only go when you're sick. And that way you can catch things much earlier. Technology on all levels is going to increase the probability that you live longer because every single element that leads to you eventually getting drugs will be minimized because you'll start finding things faster. Where AI, and believe it or not, I actually downloaded an app two days ago. So this is the only app I'm aware of for health that already combines AI. ChatGPT is part of the app and it's with an app called Breathwork. Breathwork, you use an EKG. So on my iWatch, I do an EKG and then it monitors my breath and then it shows me my HRV, my heart rate, and it kind of gives me a level of the steadiness of my breath because it's supposed to be something that has this beautiful shape to it. And this gives you the chance. Now, the chat GPT comes in because it asks you questions too. And so when you said you had migraines, as far as I know, when you walk into a doctor and you go, I have migraines, they don't really have a way to see it on an MRI. They don't really have a way to see it. It's your feeling. And the problem is with AI, it can't eliminate the patient's involvement. What it can do is make the patient actually one of the most important data points that the doctor can't have. And so if you're saying, and if you remember the house shows, there were tons of times on house they couldn't figure out why the person had the migraines and then it ended up being because there was rat poison spread throughout the house, but they had to go there and see the environmental input. And this is the thing that AI will have a higher probability of getting the answer to, but only if you constantly are giving it the data from the patient. So it can't replace a doctor, but it probably makes the relationship between the patient more important than it was because what do patients do right now? The first thing people do when they have a cut on their hand or a bite, they go, what is this? And then they go make their own diagnosis. They go to the doctor and say, I know what it is. It's a spider bite. I looked online and the doctor's like, stop doing my job for me. But the reality is the patient actually has the feelings and things that bring them there. And that information is more important. And the more that people are putting it in, about three of my apps, I have to put in, how did you feel? How was your sleep last night? It asks for your data and then it connects it back to the baseline. So it's extra data that's included. So I think we're going to get into the point where the data from the patient merges with AI too. And how much did this app cost? It was free. It was yeah. free. Yeah. What, what's being done with that data that you've given the app? I'm sure it's going off to some alien who's going to fly a balloon over the country and then come <laughs> so, down and read. Well, <laughs> you know, to the house thing, it's kind of interesting, right? Because this is, again, I think a point that, Jordy, you and I have completely internalized, but I don't think a lot of others have, which is that you and I are acting as our own doctors to a degree. Sorry, it's breath flow. Oh, okay. Breath flow. Okay. So, See, here's my reading today. 
See, okay. that's oh. where it's supposed to look that, like. And then the red is where I, it was. So it's the smoothness on it. You should get that made into like a print for your office. <laughs> see, and then it gives you, look at this information. See, it gives me my HRV. It gives oh, me this whole thing. It's got a lot of cool stuff on it. So breath flow. Okay, that's we'll shout out for breath flow for oh, free. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and G3 will let all of you know what these sponsor links are. For <laughs> this podcast. No, I mean, we're, Jordy and I have internalized this notion that we are, better suited to capture our own data and to present it in a way to the appropriate clinical ecosystems. There is no clinical ecosystem in the United States that would replace what Jordy and I have just done over the last few years. That doesn't exist. Right. And so introducing AI actually makes this an even more complicated problem because just getting a doctor to wrap the clinical bow around everything that we've done that have quantitative positive impacts on our lives and our health span. I think Jordy and I are both younger now than when we met, which is kind of a fun thing to say right? yeah. without time travel or anything weird going on. Right. <laughs> but we are now younger than we, than we were when we met, but there is no clinical platform that would allow for us to do that. And so now if all of a sudden we're taking AI and we see this regulate first idea with AI that's permeating parts of the U S government, it does worry me that we're at a point where just like the, financial regulators are putting walls up trying to keep crypto out of the existing financial system. We would see the same thing with AI and we would see it both in the financial side and on the healthcare side because this notion of black boxes making patient decisions or something that the ecosystem is not comfortable with. Now, Jordy and I are both smart enough not to just take a pill because an AI told us to. So sorry, (laughs) people's Republic of China, you can't get us that way. (laughs) But we are in a situation where we are going to rapidly increase the ability for us to get proactive about this using AI. And that time is going to accelerate even faster because at some point someone is going to create an app or whatever that could take all the data that Jordy and I have done, all the things that we're doing and come up with uniquely individualized responses for actions that would not take years and years of trial and error, but actually be, okay, here's 90 days okay, you're missing some data, grab the Aura Ring, grab the Whoop, put an Apple Watch on, use this one machine for 30 days and see what happens, you know, a couple of other things. And then all of a sudden it'll say, oh, here's what you need to do. Mm-hmm. Try these three things. And all of a sudden you're going to start seeing some incredible clinically viable results that come out of that. But we're not far from that. I mean, that's not a matter of years away. Wait, I want to ask Sultan a question here because... As we're going down this, and I think people need to hear this, I don't know the number, but my guess is that 99% of all the data collected from tests for the medical community have been done in the last four years. I'm just guessing some number. It's going to be some ridiculous number, partly because of COVID, but also partly because we're just collecting more data on an exponential basis every year. But in particular, data was not captured in the healthcare side. So it was very difficult if you weren't exchanging and collaborating in the healthcare side. The more data you feed AI, the more powerful it's going to get. And then the reason I bring that up is no offense to the doctors out there, but there's no way a doctor who works really hard and has six kids, I mean, an ex-brother-in-law of mine who I love to death, He's got a lot of kids and he works really hard. There's no way he can keep up on every single thing in the medical community, in every journal. And the great thing about AI is all the data and all the fuel that's out there. Artificial intelligence just takes that data and keeps learning and has it. And so it's going to get better than doctors in some way where they're just going to have more information. So it will make the doctors better if they utilize it. But at a minimum, the data side, I'd love to ask Sultan just how important all this increased data is to connect to artificial intelligence. I mean, it's absolutely critical. You know, there are a lot of newer AI models out there where you try to limit the amount of data because it's just, it gets noisy, it gets messy and all that. But the fact is, is let's get the data digital first and then do the analysis and figure it out. Because 10 years ago, we did not have enough data to have any of the conversations that we're having today. That just didn't exist. That data was not available at any sort of meaningful scale. There is this basic notion in the medical ecosystem that people are identical. Right. And right now, coming out of phase three trials, the drugs that get, whether it's a cancer drug or an over-the-counter or, you know, painkiller or whatever, efficacy is in the teens percentile, right? We only know that over the last few years because it comes out of phase three and then all of a sudden they put it in the real world and now we're capturing the real world data, right? And now we have an incentivization system that's disconnected. I mean, Jordy and I were talking about this before we started recording. I have a tremendous amount of sympathy for the medical ecosystem because their incentivization structure is not geared towards the conversation that we're having right now. But when you talk about data, we know 
large buy side and sell side firms have these massive data lakes and they have very smart people tending to them, organizing them, making them better. Is there any comparable in the medical system that has the ability to do that? No, not remotely. Some of the bigger healthcare systems, especially outside of the United States, have significant data repositories. I worked on a clinical cancer program in Singapore a while ago, and they had an amazing data repository that was excellent because they have such a high propensity of a certain type of cancer in Singapore. And so they got very direct about the data, but it was a single unified system. Here, we don't. I'll give you the simplest example. If you wanted to take your genome and analyze it for what I would call a general health diagnostic, so get an exome, it's about a couple thousand dollars, and then go have this kind of next stage of analysis done to kind of say, okay, what drugs are going to react badly to, you know, what color eyebrow do you have, that kind of thing. That analysis requires over 400 databases that are manually curated, owned by 300-some organizations. There is no single big repository. There is no big place where this all lives in a meaningful way. So lots of work yeah. left to be done. Okay. Wait, before you get off this topic, sorry, I know this is going to be a long episode, but there it's is going to be a record breaker. Yeah. Well, <laughs> but there, there is an example. And again, everyone needs a practical example of how artificial intelligence has already impacted our lives. The majority of people in this country have already had something that was totally created by an artificial intelligence or sped up the process. And that was the COVID vaccine. So Dave Johnson is the head of artificial intelligence at Moderna. I've listened to probably six podcasts that he's been on now describing how it went from get the sequenced virus and then two days later have a blueprint. 40 days after that, it's already in trial before New York is shut down. So artificial intelligence didn't solve the problem, but it sped up the problem to where humans couldn't do. And so that led, and if you saw the Moderna Merck announcement on a cancer vaccine. This connects another form of data, which Sultan brought up, which gets into the virus sequence, meaning we're getting more data on sequencing DNA. The more data we get on that side, the more we can figure out which drugs are better tailored to certain people to make sure that it's all customizable to the person. Well, I mean, this point is well set, and it should be clear that when I talk about needing hundreds of databases and doing genetic analysis, it's because there's AI sitting on top of it. Right. And that's yep. what we created a decade ago. Right. That's part one. Part two is that we are going to be at a place where every single drug is hyper personalized. Maybe it's not to you exactly, but it's going to be to some very, very nominally small population that has a certain degree of genetic and other operational characteristics of a human that's going to be different than what we see today. Because 10 years ago, most cancer drugs, highly generic. You'd create it even, you know, now we have this whole industry on biologics. And frankly, that's what these all are, right? So we need to start thinking about how to operationalize this faster and getting things through the regulatory system faster because we are going to be at a point where AI is going to be telling us where to build drugs better, faster, cheaper. And we don't want to just have it go through quickly when there's a pandemic. Do you happen to believe that these tests like Galeri by Grails is part of our future and will become a bigger part of how we go about finding disease? The short answer is yes. At this point, we are completely reinventing how we diagnose things, how we test things, the platforms we use, how often it happens. I think that's an example. I think there's a great glucose kind of diabetes management firm called Levels that does some amazing work that's, I would say, kind of a, a parallel example this is just an ongoing thing. And at some point, somebody's going to create a, a device or some sort of a wearable that will, or a category of wearables that will alleviate the need for all of us to have all these separate different unitaskers, as Alton Brown would say. <laughs> kind of a super app. Yeah, like a super wearable or something. Yeah. Or it's a pill you swallow and it sits in your gut for six months or whatever, right? We are going to end up in a place where for those who want to do this, who want to manage their biological age more directly, that will happen. Can we talk about that? Because you made reference to the fact that you and Jordy were older than you are now. I know for a fact when I introduced the two of you, I did not do so at Burning Man. So there wasn't any sort of phantasmagorical thing going on. Are, so are you sure about that? I'm absolutely sure about that. So if you could, Jordy. Talk about the difference between chronological and biological age. Well, it's very simple. Chronological age is the amount of birthdays you've had. <laughs> and biological is basically 
the age you are in kind of the average chronological time based on your biology and based on your health. And so this gets back into the health span and the lifespan, which is when you're at 65 and you can't walk, is that really 65 at this point? If you're 65 and you're overweight and you're obese and you've got a lot of inflammation, you're not 65. So the chronological age is I want to be 50 years old, but I want to be able to do the things that a 30 year old can do. And part of the way that I measure that is through the analytics that we get on our wearables. And what we've tried to do is target those to an age that's not about athletics, but when you read, it's like, Oh, if your resting heart rate is this level, that's an athlete level. Well, I just view it as let's convert it into chronological age. You're younger than you otherwise would be for the average person. Yeah. I love having this conversation because it allows me to talk about two things. I really think we need to change. One is we count age wrong. Once you get, let's say 18, 20 years old, it needs to be the opposite. It needs to be a negative number. Like how far away are you from some degree of infirmity? Right? So, I am 10 to 15 years younger. So my, that negative number went up by 10 to 15 years over the last few years. I think, you know, Jordan, yep. you're, you're kind of in a similar spot. But the process under which we manage that is the biological debt that we've created because we have fundamentally begun living our lives outside of the evolutionary pathway that the billions of years of evolution that led to this form created. Can you just define what you mean by biological debt, which I believe is a term that you have in fact coined. It is. So biological debt is the category of actions, impacts to the biology of the human body that have been impacted based on just living the life you have to live today in the 21st century, whether it's the absorption of plastic in the ecosystem, monocropped foods, different just physical patterns of behavior. You know, people try to get to their, what, 10,000 steps, right? A hundred years ago, do you think we had any issue about people getting to 10,000 steps? No. Not at all, right? So we are having to create crutches because biology has led our body to be a certain point. And in the last century, we've radically altered that from how we live, how we sleep, what we do on a daily basis, how we consume things, the things that happen just by us walking down the street, you know, sunburn, things like that. And fundamentally, what Jordy and I are doing are looking at systems to manage the biological debt that we are collecting. Because if Jordy and I were, you know, living on a farm 150 years ago in upstate New York or Maine or something, we'd probably both be dead already. But like we would have lived a far healthier life up until that point. And then if you go back to biological age, the math would have actually worked out. We would have been that negative number away from an, an implied death. And for me, it's actually not death. It's a line in the sand where you can't stand on one foot for two minutes. And that means you're going to die within seven years. So for me, biological age is a negative number up to zero. And then you go from zero to seven. And then at seven, it's like, yeah, you're probably going to die. Are you sure two minutes you're going to die in seven years? <laughs> I mean, that's scary. I mean, Jordy has had me do that. I mean, yeah. no, it's a, it, it is a, it is a it marker. Is, it is a key indicator of systemic struggle. And a collection of biological <clears throat> debt that you are going to spend an inordinate amount of energy getting around, which is why, by the way, and this is where I, I say something that is going to get me in trouble probably. But the fact is we spend 90% of the R&D in new drugs for things that are going to create a life extension for someone who's within 10 years of death already. That is a completely inappropriate utilization of resources. Yeah. And before G3, you, you know, again, I... There's a reason why I do Pilates. There's a reason why I do yoga. There's a reason why I do balancing things. It's because it's using more muscles in the body. I'm trying to use as many muscles as possible and make myself strong because it'll help me be able to stand on there. So what is great about standing on one foot at the beginning, we talked about systems thinking. That is an easy definition of like, okay, at the end, we want to find one thing to help us where it encompasses this complex thing and feeds up balance and your brain and your weight and your exercise and all this stuff. And I think standing on one foot is a great way of summarizing kind of this whole thing for your body. So is it completely accurate? No. But the reality is if you can't stand on one foot, you should look at your entire perspective of what you're doing for your body and you got to change some stuff. And can you talk about how controlling the vagus nerve is also connected to your biological age. Yes. I had a feeling. So, but again, think of it as standing on one foot. So what's important about understanding the vagus nerve? The first one is stress ages us. 
no doubt about it. Stress means we're in fight or flight. It means your heart rate is working way too much too often. It's going to lead to higher blood pressure. So right off the bat, chronic stress, which also comes from chronic inflammation. If you look up inflammation, basically the vagus nerve is your inflammation control mechanism. So it is the thing sending out the signals on this. So when you want to learn, that's why if you type in migraines, vagus nerve, a whole bunch of stuff pops up. You type up chronic kidney disease, boom, vagus nerve, liver, boom, everything. It's connected to every organ and goes up to the brain. So all of your vital areas, the vagus nerve is associated with. Second thing I mentioned before, willpower. We all know we should eat healthy. Why do we eat McDonald's? It's willpower at the end of the day. It's not that it tastes good because everyone is sick two minutes after they're done consuming it. So what forces us to do that? The vagus nerve is part of that whole thing. So if you want to increase your willpower, if you learn vagal toning and you can get to the point that your vagus nerve is a little bit more calm, maybe you don't actually take it because you go to your rational brain and you go, ah, you know what? My prefrontal cortex is saying, don't have that chicken McNugget because I know it's filled with stuff I don't want to have. Third part is increase oxygen flow. So if you focus on the vagus nerve and you're focused on that little situation of just increasing your oxygen, it goes. But then the final thing is like I started to ski in my forties. I wouldn't say that's the best decision for longevity. And I knew that going into it. So as a smart systems thinker trying to make sure I don't hurt myself, I really started with, okay, here's what I want to do. I really want to be in nature in the wintertime. I want my kids to ski. I think it's great for them. It's a skill they'll have for the rest of their life. But my vagus nerve said, okay, dude, we have to make better decisions with this. And we have to be very rational about the way we're going to ski. We're not just going to go on the mountain and fall down a bunch of times, break my knee. So I literally found a group and I said, all I want to learn how to do is go down the mountain the slowest I can. If I can learn how to go down the slowest I can, meaning I wanted to focus on the technical skills rather than just standing on skis and going down. And so I literally joined a group for that. So making decisions is like the fourth thing that'll extend longevity, make you healthier is making rational, good decisions. Well, Jordy, you just jumped over one of the most interesting conversations that you and I had. It was the last time you and I were sitting down talking about this. I'm going back to the, your comment about breathing. So when Jordy and I last month were both kind of realizing that we had both gone down the HRV rabbit hole, we obviously were talking about a lot of different aspects of breathing. But the one that we were both like, hey, did you know this? Most people didn't know this. And we were kind of saying it right at each other at the same time, which is let's just say you're overweight and you do all the things you need to do. You eat less, you work out, all that other great stuff. Where does that weight actually go? Where does that fat actually go? Most people don't know this. Do you know where it goes? I do, but <laughs> I didn't until Jordy uh, put me on the spot. And asked you guys me. hang around with me. A little <laughs> yeah, yeah. So for those who don't know, it is the carbon dioxide you breathe out. That is where your weight goes. And so if you are not breathing well, you can't lose weight as effectively. And so it doesn't matter if you're five pounds overweight or 50 pounds overweight or 500 pounds overweight. Well, 500 probably. You might have some other issues. But any person who is wanting to lose weight, the first and last thing they should be thinking about is breathing. And I am just blown away that that seems like a revolutionary comment. You talk to people, most of the people don't really know that. Most of the people don't really think about where it actually goes. And just by asking that question, you can see people's eyes kind of light up. It's like, oh, that's right. It's not, you know, the laws of thermodynamics. Things don't just disappear. They have to go somewhere, right? And if all of a sudden you do that and you give them something tangible, it's like, oh, am I breathing well today? Maybe I'm going to lose a little more weight. And that then becomes a vector for them to start thinking about it more proactively. And there's some good psychology there. But then that allows for Jordy's comment about discipline in terms of, understanding it and then acting on it and staying committed to it to become more real. It becomes a very tangible thing. Oh, if I am more efficient at breathing, if I am more regular at breathing, here are actual quantifiable things that are going to be better about my life. This concludes part one of our conversation with Sultan. Thank you for listening and please be on the lookout for the second part of our conversation, which will be dropped in a few days. This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are subject to change without notice. Information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. 
Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investment. Any health-related information shared on this podcast is not intended as medical advice or for use in self-diagnosis or treatment. Please consult a qualified healthcare professional before acting upon any health-related information on this podcast. Please review related show notes for this podcast and visit www.gweiss.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.